This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Uma, and Uma had to flee states with her son because of her abusive ex. It's a story of PTSD, programming, intimate partner violence, and resilience. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. And this is a podcast that gives a voice to survivors of toxic relationships. I am Brandon Chadwick, but my friends call me Chad. And thanks for tuning into this episode. So what is a narcissist, you may ask? Well, for the purposes of this podcast, we refer to a narcissist as anyone who has displayed a pattern of behavior that shows a limited capacity to appreciate others' perspectives. It is that simple. And now, before we get to our episode with Uma, I first want to thank everyone in the Narcissist Apocalypse community for listening to the show and sharing your thoughts by email, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Also, a reminder, if you've not left us a review on whatever podcast service you use, Spotify, Apple, Google, Stitcher, CastBots, etc., etc., please leave us a five-star written review as it helps out the show a lot when it comes to rankings. Now, if you have not been to our website recently, please do go there if you want to be part of our show. So you go to NarcissistApocalypse.com, top of the page, there's a button that says guest form. Fill out that guest form and we will go from there. Another way to be on our show is to also go to NarcissistApocalypse.com, and it's for our Read a Letter to Your Narcissist compilation episodes. Yes. So there's on for that, there's a button on the side of the page that says Send Voicemail. You press that button, it records up to five minutes. Press it twice, records up to ten, and so on, and so on, and so on. We are collecting these letters for Volume 6 of our Letters to My Narcissist episode. And if you do not want to read the letter yourself, you want me or my old pal Melissa to read the letter for you, please do send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com and put letters to my narcissist in the subject line. Also, for people that have gotten a hold of me and to want to be on the show, please check your junk mail. I most likely replied and you know, I, I've gotten a lot of uh, inquiries uh, recently and not a lot of responses once I sent the reply back. So please do 
uh, check your junk mail. And what else do we have here? The usual, yes, the usual high-conflict parenting courses that we're now offering at NarcissistApocalypse.com slash courses. Yes, we have partnered with an online parenting company called Online Parenting. And many of the courses we are offering were created by Bill Eddy. And if you've listened to our episode last year with a divorce lawyer named Helen, you'll know that Bill Eddy is an expert in dealing with these individuals in court. And now he's helped create many parenting courses to help you through divorce and to help support your children too. These courses are the most widely recognized courses by family courts across the country. So if you want to support the show and are looking for guidance, please do go to NarcissistApocalypse.com slash courses. And do you want to be part of our Patreon? What is a Patreon? Well, our Patreon is a way to support the show. Yes, an other way to support the show, everyone. What will you get on our Patreon? You'll hear episodes that never made it to air, follow-up episodes with former guests. We've already had a follow-up episode with Simon on there. We're going to have a third one eventually. I think we're going to record that this week. And what else do we have on there? Because I wrote down in my notes here, much, much more. But what is that much, much more? Well, we have virtual support groups on there. We also have our own forum board that's attached to it as well. So we can privately talk safer than the Facebook forum boards for a lot of people who are nervous about using those forum boards and having people find out. So where do you go? You go to patreon.com slash narcissist apocalypse for as low as $5 a month. You get all of this stuff. You want to give us more? Give us more. Help support the show. Helps keep us free. So what else do we got here for you? Well, I guess the last thing in my notes is to talk about this episode with Uma. And this is a really uh, inspiring episode. I didn't do that much talking. You know, I don't do much talking on a lot of episodes. Most of the episodes, you don't hear me that much. You know, they're really clarifying things for the most part, asking little bits of questions. But, you know, on this one, Uma really just kind of took over. It was really inspirational. This is a, a heartbreaking story, but it's also a story of resilience and a story of strength. And I think everyone is going to love Uma we get the most emails from our episode with Elizabeth from almost two years ago. Um, that uh, Most people really connected with Elizabeth more than anyone that's ever been on the show as far as sending me emails. And I have a feeling that this one with Uma will do the exact same thing. She was uh, superb from beginning to end. Uh, one of the most quotable uh, episodes that you will hear. I think I'm going to have tons of stuff for Instagram for at least doing two posts a day. You know, that's, it was a, you know, really uh, inspiring episode. So the people who are going through intimate partner violence uh, issues and, you know, listen to this episode, you know, I, you know, she's pretty badass. So, you know, that's all I kind of have to say. Really want to thank Uma for being on the show, being part of the show and telling her story for the first time from beginning to end. And it's not easy to do. And she did a really good job and that's it. That's all I have to say. Here is my conversation, my episode, this podcast with Uma. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. With me today, I have Uma. How are you? <laughs> I'm well. Thank you for having me. And you're giggling because you love the name Uma. And yeah. so 
uh, I just want to thank you for being here on, on short notice. Um, <laughs> again. So honestly, from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for being here. Uh, we've talked before and it was, you know, you've been through a lot and everyone's going to hear your story today. Uh, you're someone who's had to uh, flee the state that you were from and, you know, starting a new life uh, where you are right now and still in limbo in, in a lot of ways. So uh, I just want to thank you uh, for being here. I know you're going to help a lot of people. And without further ado, Uma, the floor is now yours. Awesome. Strap in. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I, w- I was born uh, in a very small southern town. And uh, southern towns, when it comes to uh, the roles of women in marriage, are, are very uh, exact. You get married, and you honor your man, and he makes the decision. And though I didn't subscribe to that at all, of course, it's part of my programming. And um, I got my first professional job as a um, performer, a singer, an actor, and a stunt woman Um, when I was about uh, 20, in my early 20s, and I, I just left college, and I went against everybody's um, belief that I would fall on my face and that I couldn't do it. I couldn't be independent all night. I I should also add that I had been through childhood trauma where I had been accosted by my neighbor. Um, So they, as well as other traumatic events that happened. So there's a lot of uh, pre, uh, uh, pre programming for uh, wanting to be codependent and things like that. So me breaking out on my own at this time in my life was huge, and I was so excited. And I went. I had a great time at this job. It was a long-standing job. And the second year I went back was when I met my soon-to-be husband. We met there. Uh, he was from a city, and this job was in a very rural area, and he did not have a car. So I was like, yo, you can ride in my car. You're going to need groceries. And we would listen to music, and this was back when I did those things. I smoked a lot of pot with him and, and talked. And I considered him a very good friend. Cut to the end of the job, about four months later, you know, um, I stayed on to do their Halloween and Christmas shows, and he went on to do other things. And I then went home to my home state. Uh, which is North Carolina, I'll say that. And I was there, and he called me once and connected with me, and we talked. And it turned out that we had both gotten cast for a national tour. And I went on this tour. And I, I don't know if other people have found this to be the same, but when you, you have your dream career in mind and you work really hard for it, researching it in a place where it's impossible to find research on, really just going off the fire in your belly and you get it and you're in your element for the first time. That is extremely intoxicating. It really is. And everything in that time of my life was colored in such beautiful hues and it was wonderful. And during that time, I had a boyfriend I loved very much, and we were together for about four years, but that boyfriend was always very jealous of anyone, anyone male who even spoke to me. 
and he could never put it down. And on the tour with my soon-to-be husband, let's just call him Jay, uh, Jay and I had become really good friends, so I was telling him about this. I was like, I don't have any future with this person. I don't have any future with my boyfriend. I just don't. And that night, we all went out. <laughs> we all went out and we went on the town. We went on Beale Street and we got toasted and had a great time. And Jay kissed me. I told him like 45 minutes earlier, I was going to break up my, with my boyfriend and he kissed me. And the relationship started on tour. And that's where it began. At the end of the tour, I had a choice. You know, I could um, go back home or I could go with him. And this is where I should have seen every red flag. I should have seen it. You know, it came down to me paying rent on a place I'd never seen in the middle of New York. And I remember giving Jay the check. And he was so cold and defensive and frustrated and angry. And I had the check in my hand. I said, you realize I'm walking away from everything just for the chance to be with you. No promise of a future, but everything. My life before, yeah, it's crap, but it's mine. And I'm giving you like $800, $900 for a place I've never even seen. You could at least be kind about receiving this check, you know. And he got defensive and angry, and I'd never seen him like that before. And so in my mind, I justified it as, well, he's taking a chance too. He's scared too. He's committing his life to someone he never lived with, doesn't know much about. He's just being a male, ego-driven, misogynistic defensive. That's what I thought. And it is. I'm so sorry. <laughs> That's my programming, too. And um, so before, the tourist, sorry, before we go to yeah, the please. next part, what is it that you like the most about him? I guess what has kind of got you... Uh, to want to move in with him um, so soon and, like, uh, as far as love bombing, like, how did your relationship I kind, uh, kind of unfold? <laughs> now, when I say this, this is going to sound like I really uh, highly value myself. I do not. I am just now learning what a, a beautiful soul I am, but I, I, he appealed to my intelligence. He was very funny. Um, the sound of his laugh was very attractive and he was really, um, brazen. He would take on the establishment by saying, well, this isn't right. You know, we deserve to be treated better. Um, he was very charismatic, very charming, uh, an incredible singing voice and very talented. Uh, and he was gorgeous. And we would, it, it, when you, are in some sort of job where you end up talking about the human condition a lot. Friendships, relationships, they move really fast because you're talking about such deep subject matter, you know, and that can be a, a veil too. I can disguise uh, reality very quickly too. So, you know, it, it, he had a lot of qualities and there were things that I had told him as a friend, like I, I had vowed that I would never be a mom. I would never have kids, you know, um, there's a lot of genetic death in my family, and I'm not bringing that on anybody. And I was, 
I still were. And I, I told him, I said, you know, as a friend, I was like, I'm never having kids. I'd like to believe I could adopt one day, have money to adopt, but I'm not. I'm not having children. And he said, well, you know, if I adopted kids, I would love them just like my own flesh and blood. That, that kind of, those things made me fall for him, you know. That that he was portraying uh, himself as like this uh, family man, you know. Uh, yeah. You know, this loving family man and that's something that was attractive to you because especially in that sense as far as the adoption sense because you know you in a way you did want a family but you were too scared to have one of your own and here's a guy saying all the right things when it comes to that aspect of uh parenting and wanting to be a mom yeah and i mean we we worked together for what four months solid we were pretty much together a lot. And then, you know, so there, there was, you know, he put in time. He had, he had time to build that up. And when we were on tour, it was so beautiful and wonderful. And we're fighting with swords, which is a huge aphrodisiac for me. I'm so sorry. It is. I, I love stage combat. I love doing it. I love being a part of it. And he respected me as, an actor combatant and that meant a lot and we're it it was really intoxicating time too so in a way you know how everyone hears those stories of how uh, celebrities in movies uh become couples quickly and then it all falls apart really quickly um just because of how closely you they're working together in very intimate settings and uh for you super accelerated yeah, and for you, you guys are in it every single day, like in a very contained environment um, that involves uh, like mandatory camaraderie, and um, yes. it, it creates the situation. I am terrified of heights. I am really afraid of heights. And I was doing stunt fall for shows. Mm-hmm. You have to go through stunt fall training. And he was one of the people there supporting me and cheering me on. You see what I mean by accelerated? Mm-hmm. It's that kind of, you know, you don't share that experience with many people. That's a really rare side that people get to see of you. And if that helps, um, make, making that, I don't know, clearer in a way. In a way, right off the bat, you're starting off as a team. Yeah. Yeah. And that's really what I thought of him as. was I thought he was my best friend. I did. I shared everything with him. Even then. And, uh, you know, so after tour, I went with him to live in his uh, Manhattan apartment. And it was gorgeous and beautiful. And we went on our first and only real date to an Italian restaurant. And it was like Manhattan was with us, man. The wind was blowing. We were laughing. The best Italian pasta you'd ever freaking have. And I remember on tour, we were in Reno. And he said, let's get married. And I literally froze because he said it jokingly. And I said, don't you ever say that again unless you mean it to me. But if I ever have the chance to marry a man like you, I will do it. I will jump in. So don't mess with me. <laughs> it, was very, it was very direct and serious. Don't say it unless you mean it. And he was very shocked. But then we left the tour. We go back to New York. And my career is exploding at this time. I, be, I get cast as the face of a company 
and it's going to be a really intense job and I'm going to be doing all their promotional stuff and be on all their pictures and it's, my career's exploding. I'm living in the city of my dreams and everything's beautiful. It was the honeymoon phase and he's like, let's get married. And I said, okay. So we got married in city hall in New York by a woman who hated to be there. It was just like the scene in Spaceballs. Do you, do you find kisser? She literally said next after, after we kissed, she said, by the power of us and me in the state of New York, you're now man and wife to make us a bud. And we were like, thank you. Thank you. She said, yeah, next. She couldn't be more upset that that was her job. It was the best day ever. It was so much fun. And we had pizza afterwards. And it cost us $10 max. It was great. And then four hours after that, that simple little silly ceremony that I loved and all its, its silly stupidness, he changed into a completely different person, a person I had never seen before. And it was night and day. And that person got crueler and crueler and more vicious and more neglectful. And then I went to my dream job with him. We were both working together. And if you're an actor and you're working with your husband and he's also in the same field you are, that's extremely rare. And we did that for about 10 years. It's really rare that you get one job like that, let alone an entire career like that. Um, that was also how I stayed very isolated. He was really insular in that respect. So we go to this job and it's my dream job too. And, and it's a seasonal job. It's about four months and I'm the face of this company. And he didn't talk to me almost for a full year. He was gone. I, I, I was such, I was in such a state of shock. He was just gone. Finally, the season ends. And these people we work with were going to have a pirate party. They were going to have a pirate theme party. And they were going to make it awesome. There was a live band and, you know, drinks. You don't know what's in those drinks, but they look pretty. And you're like, oh, well, whatever. It's a pirate party. So we had a ball. I dressed up. I was going out. And he danced with me. And it was the first time in like a year that he looked me in the face. We were performing together that year, and there would be times where he would feel slighted, and he would walk off the stage and leave me there. And this moment happened, and he's looking me in the face, and we're slow dancing, and I just start to cry, and we get home. And everything's pleasant, because you know how it is with the narcissist. You have to accept the happy when it shows up. Because you don't know when it's going to be there. That's how they keep you there, too. And I remember saying to him, I finally just started to cry. And he's like, what is it? He's so kind, you know. And I said, where have you been? Where the hell have you been? Where did you go? And he said, I'm here now. And I said, yeah, but where were you? Are you going to go there again? Where did you go? And he chose rage and he raged himself out of the room. I don't think he wanted to be there in the first place. And nothing gets resolved. 
you know, and just go on. So, so can you explain after- a little bit about the year um, where he was gone, and that, that that meaning he was emotionally just not there at all for you? Can you kind of explain? How it be kind of how it began, and maybe tactics uh, of, uh, of what would kind of go on uh, during that time, and how you emotionally got through it when you noticed it, and things along those lines. Yeah, it's like just no present. If you do get his present, like he'll be beside you, but he's not there to be with you. He's a body. He's matter on the couch and you could reach and touch him and there would be no reaction. There, there's this thing that would happen. And this happened right after our son was born. He was gone again, just like that, where I would repeat myself three times. I could be sitting directly beside him and I would repeat myself three times about, you know, adult, anything, a bill, a car payment, didn't matter what it was. But I would repeat myself three times, and he would never answer me. He wouldn't even acknowledge that I was there. In public, he would sometimes. Um, But you want to talk about him relating to me like he liked me? No. He would only do that very few and far between. And then when we would go home, he would completely just go back to his phone or completely not hear me. So I would have to ration what I would bring up to him by a matter of importance. And I knew that out of eight things, I could try three, but I guarantee you he'll only hear one if he hears one. And just gone. And he would drink a lot, of course, and he would completely just be vacant. And if I did get his attention, he was normally angry for being disturbed. So if that's clearer... And when you would bring up the fact that he is being vacant, it would cause uh, an argument, or would he not even listen to you? Um, normally an argument, uh, but he was very victim narcissistic tendencies. He would, you know, always pick that road, always, 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 always. So that was just always where we ended up. And that was the year that my um, my boss was sexually harassing me. And I told him about it, and they remained friends. Um, I didn't tell anybody else about it, because when I told him about it, there wasn't really much of a reaction. So I, I didn't want to lose my job. I knew where I worked was a misogynistic place, so much so that if I said anything, it would be me causing a problem during the season, and there would be no chance of me ever working for that company again, and I would lose all my contacts. So it would be the death of my career, and it was just starting. So, and he was still so distant. It was like he was countries and countries away, but he's sitting right there in the same room with me. And the only time he would be kind to me is if he um, was drinking and um, had turned me on to be the person to receive his monologues. And the only way I could engage in those monologues was to yes and him. Yes and yes and there would be no room for me 
in this conversation or anything that I would want. And, and the yes and thing is, uh, it's an improv trick, correct? It is. Yeah. Hey, we're going to the store. Yes. And why don't we take this axe just in case we might need it? There might be zombies. <laughs> Look at that. And the story starts. <laughs> it's, you know, so very good trick. It's how improv starts. The only way. So, yeah. Yes, and you can only contribute to what he wanted you to contribute to. You know, that would be the only way I could have a presence. In a way, he like uh, he talks at you, not with you. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. I despise that. And yes, that's exactly what it was. Um. Then we started doing other things together, and and you know, whenever we had to drive somewhere, he didn't have he. His license got pulled for drinking while he was driving, and he got busted. So I would have to drive, and we would drive all up and down the East Coast working, like sometimes 14-hour drives, and he would start belittling me, screaming at me, insulting me, berating me while I'm driving 13, 14, 15 hours. And we were working together during Christmas and a lot of things like that. For this uh, company that was just, it was just an ideal situation. Their promotions were slamming. It was in a mansion. They had their own private chef. You stayed in vacation villas. Choice. It was choice. And <laughs> performing with him was so painful. Because backstage, even during costume changes, he would be berating me or he would be stirring the pot to start something, aggressive questioning, um, reactive abuse, you know, building up even from then. And then the minute we go on stage, he's, he's who he's supposed to be. He's who's getting the paycheck, charismatic and everything like that. And it was, my heart was breaking because I love this man. How can I not perform with this man? What is happening? And because I have all this, programming of things being my fault because I'm a woman, because I told people what happened to me when I was a child and it was never handled or dealt with because I have that kind of programming. I would always assume it was me. And that only got stronger. He fed that a lot. Now we did have good times. Yes. We had beautiful times compared to the fact that he did get violent. Not many times, not enough that I would leave until the last incident. But it happened enough that I should have seen it. But to be honest, and I'm going to say this, this isn't about my situation in particular. It's about every situation when it comes to this kind of abuse. Everything we see says that that is okay. The movie It's a Wonderful Life, I used to love that movie. George Bailey grabs his future wife and he squeezes her so hard that you can tell he left bruise marks on her arms and he shakes her and we're told it's a great love story the princess bride for example does the same stuff the lead character he's like why didn't you wait for me you could have sent a note five years you don't send a note and it's her fault and so we get all this programming from everywhere that we are not enough all the time. And then the person you love, who is your best friend, is putting that in your head all the time, too. Of course you're going to believe it. And it only got worse. 
and it only got stronger and it only changed in format. I started getting sick. I got migraines on Valentine's Day for the first time and I had to go to the hospital. And he, uh, my estranged husband, Jay, would say things like, well, it's migraines. I'm sure that's what it is. And I was, you know, horrified. I was like, is, is this what they are? I can't stop vomiting. What is happening? I went to a doctor after they sent me home from the hospital, and he's like, yes, it's migraine. You just have to live with this now. And I walk out of the doctor's office, like, shocked. Like, okay, great. Fabulous. I'm just going to have this random pain that feels like death. Awesome. And I told my, my husband then, and he said, yeah, I knew that's what it was. Cold, flat. And there were times when I would stand up for myself, like that time where I said, you know, I just found out something real awful. Is that your response to your wife? So things like that would continue. Uh, He would get violent with me, not much, like I said. But um, he has picked me up and punched me in the back. Um, Once during sex, he hit me with his hand. Um, just, Just a handful of things that I wouldn't bolt the um, gaslighting emotional manipulation all of those things aggressive questioning that was every day and there was the economic and financial abuse because I we lived in Philly at one time and I was a budding writer at the time I was just beginning to get pretty sick consistently at that time as well and I wrote I was in the middle of writing a script. Now, Philly has a policy um, that any theater house will look at your work. It doesn't have to be represented. And if they like it, they'll produce it. They will put it on its feet. And so I was really excited. And I wrote a piece. It had a, it was really relevant and beautiful and funny. And I loved it. He couldn't be bothered. I, I was like, let me read this to you. He sat down with his drink and just kept rolling his eyes, literally. I didn't stop reading. I just kept reading. And then at the end of it, I was like, you know, you could at least pretend like you care. I'm your wife, and this is something that obviously matters to me. And he's like, yeah, well, you need to take English classes. This just doesn't make sense. And he dogged it so much, I never went back to it. Because had that blown up, man, that's not where he wanted me. And he isolated me from my family and my friends and um, from my life and stuffed me full of his only where he was from and it went on like that and went on like that. And then I got very sick and I stayed sick and, um, I couldn't walk and I had this sensation of itching under my skin, on top of my skin all the time, mild hallucinations, audio, audio and and visual. And now that I know that, you know, PTSD can, can cause epilepsy makes a lot of sense. Um, I wasn't working at all. And um, I was about six years of that. I had an MRI. It came back clear. They said what I was dealing with was psychosomatic. And then I had a miscarriage. My next cycle, I started to think that I was pregnant. 
And I told him, we had a lot of errands to run that day. So we ran them from nine to five. And when they were done, I said, can we get the pregnancy test now, please? We got some. And he had this thing of if, uh, you know, if it was something that was considered uh, a female thing, then I should have friends to do it with and I should do it on my own and like almost present it to him like, like odes of fealty, you know? I mean, he isolated me, so I didn't really have any friends anymore other than the ones we worked with. Um, so when I had to go get uh, a wedding dress because we had a, another wedding for our family and friends, he had to come with me and he was really put off by that. Same thing with this pregnancy. Uh, we got about six tests, took them all. All but one came back positive. Now, I had lost 55 pounds in three months. I was emaciated. I couldn't eat. I couldn't sleep. I was in the rabbit hole. I was so sick. And I looked at all the pregnancy tests, and I was like, i, I got to be pregnant. And he snapped. He did that click we talked about, and he said, you couldn't find this out and come and bring it to me. And since my son was inside me, since the moment his life started, whether I knew it was there or not, it triggered something in me. It triggered strength in me. It really changed me. And in that moment, I looked him in the face and I said, oh, I'm sorry. Did we make this baby together or did I make it by myself? It was the first time I ever stood up for myself to him. Because everywhere we went, he chose it. He always said, don't spend money. I never spent money. He spent money. Spent all money. All of it. So I never had my hair cut. And the entire time we were married, I cut my own hair pretty much. You know, I didn't buy makeup. I didn't spend anything on myself. My self-care was crap. And I had a moment where I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm too sick to have this child, and I don't think we'll ever be good parents. And I decided I'm keeping the baby. If this little thing is inside of me as sick as I am, I owe it to fight for it. And um, he was elated. Shortly after that, he got a job as, a, as an artistic director. It was a very big deal for a big company, and we were very excited. A couple of days after he got the job, he got very drunk. And now I had uh, been to the hospital while I was pregnant with my son for severe pain. I had severe pain from the beginning of the pregnancy. Just I couldn't stand upright. I couldn't bend over. It was really scary. It was terrifying. And um, we didn't know why, and I'd gone to the hospital, and they didn't know why. Well, uh, my strange husband got drunk started mouthing off, and this is the pattern that I saw the most, other than the daily crap that was the gaslighting and all the other things I said. He would get drunk, he would pick rage, and then he would kick me out. Now, it didn't matter where we were. We were on a national tour, and I had nowhere to sleep but inside a van. It didn't matter if we were in Jamaica, which he did on our honeymoon, kicked me out. He would kick me out. So this time I just left because I saw the pattern coming and I was scared. When I came back, he got violent with me, held me down on the bed with one hand uh, on my wrist and the other hand over my mouth. 
And I had to negotiate with him to pull his hand away because I couldn't breathe. It was it was cold outside, and I was stuffed up. I had to literally. And uh, he was like, "Breathe through your mouth, then." And I had to negotiate with him to get his hand away. We ended up somehow talking. Well, he ended up talking to me after that. And I'm just in shock, sitting there going, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh. And the next day, he was bubbly. He was bubbly, dude. He was happy. And I said, why are you happy? He said, oh, because I, I guess we talked a lot out last night. I said, you can't do that again. We're about to be parents. We can't be those people anymore. Oh, no, I'm sorry. He never said he was sorry to me about anything he ever did, and he did a lot. It wasn't like once a month. It was every single day there was a traumatic event of some type to piggyback a possible good moment. We lived in the tension phase, right? Because there's the honeymoon phase, the tension phase, and the explosion phase. We lived in the tension phase. That was where my marriage sat always. And he said he wouldn't again. And he went off on a 13-day retreat and he called me once. One time. I was still having pain at the time. We didn't know what was going on. And... When he, sorry, when he would go off on a, on a 13 day uh, trip like that, and then you're by yourself, are you thinking to yourself, like, are you thinking to yourself at that time, like, do I leave? Uh, What's kind of running through your brain at that, those points? Are you like, we're having a baby. What's he doing? I need him to stay and be here. And like leaving isn't even in your, in your thought process. Leaving wasn't even in my thought process. It wasn't. I and, wish it had been. Because at this point, I guess, as you as you stated before, you're thinking that I've done, I'm, maybe it's me, I've done something wrong, and are you, you're stuck in a little bit of that cycle still at this point? I think at that point I was past that. Okay. And I was, I was literally leaning on the word marriage. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And the fact that we were going to have a family. And the 13-day retreat was for his new job. Um, I had my hopes all pinned on that. And uh, while I was pregnant, he got, you know, worse. The job was high pressure, and he took it out on me. He didn't physically take it out on me. He didn't have to. Belittled me all the time. He didn't want me to show up at work. And this was a place we had worked at before. It was actually the place where we at, you know. And so I'd show up with the baby and be like, hey, can I watch you work for an hour? And he would lose his mind. He would lose his mind. And it was awful. And whenever no one was looking, he was screaming at me. When, when I had the baby, like right at the tail end of it, because, you know, he was, a mess when no one was around. Um, and sometimes calm. But, I mean, I, I have maybe two pictures of myself when I was pregnant. 
Um, and when I say neglect, there was twice he forgot to get me a Christmas present. One of those years was when I had multiple sclerosis symptoms. Now, my mother has the same disorder. And if anybody knows what that is, it's literally where your white blood cells confuse your brain matter for an attacking virus so that your body attacks itself and causes holes in your brain. This is my greatest fear. No Christmas present. And the next time he forgot to get me one was when our son was born, the year I gave it our son. That's what I mean by not present. Um, but when he was present, I was the happiest human being in the free world. I really loved him so much. I loved him so much that I thought I was fighting for him with himself. Cause you don't think it's on purpose. We lived with his family and his family was so messed up. They would fight till 6am every other night and then wake up in the morning like nothing happened profess each other's love for each other, on and on and on, and then say the most degrading, disgusting things at night, all night. And that's the house he was born and raised in. That's the environment he was raised in. That literally just eats away your frontal lobe. It destroys your frontal lobe. So the whole time I'm thinking I'm giving him a safe and happy place and he will shed this behavior. And then... He lost his job. Now, during his job that he got where he was artistic director, I wrote for him. I wrote and adapted things for him, like up to uh, maybe nine scripts. They were small. They were short. But, man, they were awesome. I loved them. And I supplied him with all that work for free. And the next season... um, He did not fight for me to be on staff. And it broke my heart so bad. And I had to reconcile that within myself to be a part of that marriage. Meanwhile, our son is beautiful and he's grown up great. And then my strange husband loses his job. And I've I've said that he's been violent with me and he has. But he would hold things against me nonstop all the time. Pick fights all the time if he needed to, you know. And, um... We had to move. There was no work there. We had to move. So we chose Pittsburgh. And we moved to Pittsburgh. And when we got there, Pittsburgh really liked my artistic work. And it was like I was blown up overnight and I just happened to be there. And he dogged it out, dogged it out, didn't want me to be any part of it. We, he's like, I'm not going to act ever again. I'm not going to be a part of this ever again. And on and on and on. Meanwhile, I'm directing shows. <laughs> you know, that he wouldn't come and see, and he would always call me. Like, it was very rare that I got something for myself, and no matter what it was, if it was teaching a summer course for kids, for acting, theater, stage, he would call me eight times a day, and if I called him, he would never answer the phone, and he's watching our son. Just, he couldn't handle it. It was awful. And then the abuse started to come more and more and he started to rage more and he started to grab me more and he started to manhandle me more and he, it became more frequent and our son saw it. And that this time our son stopped eating. When we moved to Pittsburgh, he stopped eating. He wouldn't eat. He would bang his head on the floor. He was nonverbal and he was three and a half. It was obvious something was up. And, um, 
the roof of our house came down. We ended up having to move pretty fast, and we moved into another place. And the year before we moved, right before Christmas, he had manhandled me so bad. He, he did a um, reactive abuse where he would pick a fight over something that he was holding against me for four years that he, it, it was stupid. It always is, you know. They don't need anything to fight about. They just pick anything out of the air because they need to get that relief or that high from you. And so he did four hours worth of bullying and da 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 da, da. And finally I'm in a corner and I, I react back. I'm backed up literally against the wall and I'm scared. And yes, he's hit me. Yes, he's been physical with me. So of course I react back and he grabs me by the shoulders and he swings me and I just start like flailing, like girl flail, like hands out. I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm scratch something. And my son sees it. I call my parents. They take his side in a way. They were like, let's talk. Will you take that out, please? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't yeah. worry. I was writing. I was writing it down uh, one second after with a timestamp. Thank you so much. Oh God, I got sick to my stomach just saying that. I'm sorry. They asked to speak to my husband, so they spoke to him, and then that was it. I called one of my dearest friends in the whole world, who I still have, who has been my rock. I told her about it, and she said, you got your bag packed, right? You're getting out, right? He said, I can't. And she said, yes, you can, and you have to. He put his hands on you. So I packed a bag. She signed me up for a bunch of um, places to stay, but around that time, all of them were booked. All the safe houses were booked. And uh, by the time I got the, off the waiting list and one called me back, I had been convinced to stay. But not really convinced because nothing's ever resolved. Got treated like it was all my fault. And, yeah, nothing was ever resolved. I just had my son there. And there's so many other incidences I can tell you about that I just don't want to, you know. But the night that really sealed everything for me was he got drunk and aggressive and the whole time I saw it coming for hours, about four or five hours, just belligerent, punched a dresser. And I'm like, can you just eat a sandwich? Put a Band-Aid on his hand. I was like, you're, you're angry because you need a sandwich. You drank all this liquor before eating. Come on. There's a sandwich on the table for you. You know, wifely duties. Trying to get our son... Uh, down for school the next day and he's you know angry eats the sandwich while he's at the table he's knocking things off the table and I'm like I'm not reacting to this I'm not taking the bait you know <laughs> and uh, he goes in the bedroom and he passes out and he, the F word before he passes out and I turn the light off and then he wakes back up unfortunately at the time and comes out and he hugs me and I'm crying Take that out, yeah. please. Hold on just one second. Uh, I'm going to mark that down. Um, yeah. But at the same time, can I call you back in one second? Because these weird pops started. So I'm wondering if I just okay. redo the call. Okay? okay. I'll call you back in one second. 
Hi. Hi. <laughs> Sorry about that. That's okay. You okay? Yeah, it's just really <sighs> hearing it out loud. You feel so bad for that girl. You've been through a lot. <sighs> I loved him so much. And they use that against you. That's like the worst thing, you know? It hurts so bad. <sighs> Sorry. Okay, so the night of the incident, it was really ugly. And he, uh, my estranged husband started uh, taking his pants off and mooning me while flipping me off, saying the F word to me and laughing at me. And our son is right beside me on the couch so he's maybe a foot away from his father's bare butt <laughs> and uh, our son takes a blanket and just puts it over his head our, our son's four at this time I don't react I don't laugh he gets bored and he goes back to the table where the alcohol is starts drinking says the F word again and man I I took the bait, took the stupid bait, and I lost my temper, and I said, you know, would it hurt you one time to treat me like your wife? I did. I said it, and I screamed it, and I got up in his face screaming it. And then he lunged at me. When he lunged at me, there was a jar of coconut oil on the table, and I just picked up and threw it at the radiator. I didn't throw it at him, but I did it to, like, you know, hey, look over there. Don't don't bite me, animal, you know? Kept screaming. I couldn't stop myself. It was like word vomit, just blah, everything I'd ever wanted to say in those moments that I never did ever, just falling out of my face. And he took his hand. He grabbed my hair from the base of my head. And he pulled me from the dining room to the couch. Our son is on the couch. And he slams me into it. I slap him. Because, you know, and just reaction. Slap him. Snap out of it, Dr. Jones. And then he slapped me with his wedding ring hand. I turned to run. And he put his arm around me to choke me. And he started choking. And I'm gasping and gasping. He said, settle down about three times. And, um... Then I felt, though I couldn't breathe, I felt him tense more because he was considering whether to squeeze harder or not. Then he relaxed a bit and he pushed me away. And I stayed in this state of shock. It was just madness after that. I just kept saying, oh, my God, you never loved me, and walking through the house and crying and And then I tried to talk to him afterward. I can't believe I did that. Calling the cops never even entered my mind. Keep trying to save 
something that wasn't there, that never existed. I kept trying to save it. I was like, we're about to jump off a cliff. You've got to tell me what just happened. He said, you are very intense when you get angry. And I said, does that warrant you putting your hands on me? He's like, I'm not taking responsibility for anything else. And he poured himself another drink. And we ended up on the couch out of exhaustion. And he's calling me the B word. And I get up to go. He's like, well, don't go. I mean, did you hear the pleading there like a little kid? Like, don't go. After all the vile stuff he had just said. And I'm afraid to leave because none of this is sanity. And at that time, I thought some of it was my fault. Because I did slap him. You know, I'm playing over in my head what I did. I just go into the bedroom where my son is, and I'm like, baby, I don't know how we're going to get out of this, but this ain't happening again. And the next day, I, I get my son ready for school. He goes to school. I go in the bedroom, and I say, are we going to try and find some common ground? He barks at me, and I leave, and I, I'm still in my PJs. My son comes home from school, cause preschool, and I heard, get out, so loud in my head. Because my son's on the couch, and he starts rocking, and it was like, I just woke up, get out, and I grab a bag and some shoes. I don't have a bra. I, I grab a coat. We get in the car, and we're gone. We're gone, and I just drive. I drive states away to my family's house. And I call a detective the next day from Pittsburgh, and I tell him everything, and he puts me in contact with another detective who saved my life, that I've been there. I know exactly what you're going through. Let me tell you the danger you're looking at. And at the time, I'm still thinking maybe... Maybe my um, estranged husband, Jay, has pre-dementia, pre-Alzheimer's. He's right at the age where that's where that falls in. It could be. I still think it's an isolated incident, you know. There's so much programming that he did by using my feelings for him to get his high, to get that release of control and power over someone. I didn't even know what abuse was. I mean, to be honest, at the age I was when I got married, none of the vocabulary I have now for what abuse is, I had ever heard. And I didn't press charges until we were staying in a safe house and the lawyer I had then said, you have to press charges. I kept thinking... My husband's going to realize he's going to lose us. But the whole time we were first in my family's house, he just kept blaming me. And he said, you picked a hell of a time to take a vacation. He could have been so transparently nice. He could have just been a little nice. I would have fallen for it and gone home. I would have. So quick. But he was a textbook abuser on the phone. He kept trying to pin the fight on me and pin it on me and keep pinning it on me. And he couldn't. He couldn't manipulate the situation to it being my fault. It was impossible. And it wasn't until 
my son got diagnosed with PTSD at five years old while we were, after we had fled and we were starting a new life here, that I really looked at everything like, let's just look at this like he is an abuser, like everything was intentional. Let's just one time do that. And every random argument that never got settled, every put down, every just complete and utter lack of disrespect, the neglect, all of it made sense. All of it. Everything that never made any sense that I just kind of pushed away just to function. Everything. Every single part of it. And now I'm here. Custody has yet to be decided. It's been over two years. Took me a year to get an order of protection. I got it. He broke it in a week and a half. And when I reported it, there wasn't even a police report made about it. And what's really awful about this is that people who you are supposed to be able to contact to get help, to make reports, to have a paper trail, don't believe you sometimes. Or they blame the victim. It's disgusting. People who have the job of being an advocate will still blame you for it. It's awful. And if I wasn't who I was, if I wasn't white, if my parents didn't have some sort of money and I didn't have a place to go, there is no telling what would have happened to me and my son. I can tell you that straight out. If we were in a safe house in Pittsburgh, right down the road from, from my estranged husband, we would have gone right back. Where could I have gone? And we're still fighting everything in court. I'm on my uh, fourth lawyer. Uh, <laughs> and the ridiculousness is just horrible. And when I testified in, in Pittsburgh against my still husband, the first time I went to Pittsburgh, it got continued. Um, he recognized me, and he claimed a family emergency. He didn't think I was going to show up, and when he saw me, he literally was like, oh, there's a family emergency. So I had to go back again and testify. And that day, there were so many cases, so many cases of domestic violence, and those women just couldn't even admit that it had happened. They just kept protecting their man, every single one of them. It was horrible. It was so horrible to watch. I was the only one. And it was terrifying. There were police that had to keep me um, protected. They, I literally stood against the elevators with my back towards the wall so I could watch him when he came into the courtroom so I'd be protected, make sure I was by the cops. The amount of survival instincts that I have now And, like, you go through this process and, you know, you mourn somebody who never existed or maybe existed, but it doesn't matter. And you mourn the life that you didn't really have and all that stuff. But what really is, is heartbreaking is that you feel brokenhearted for yourself because you see that person going through that and how hard they fought. I stayed emaciated after I got sick because I was told don't spend money. So I didn't eat three meals a day. 
you know, see how haggard I was. I see how much fighting I did for my family, and it was never there in the first place. And there are these twisted moments where, like, right after it happened and we were staying in a safe house, I got a job, and I thought I saw my estranged husband where I was working, and I literally raised my hand for him to see me because I missed him. And then I realized, oh, my God, if he's here, he's here to kill me. And then... I felt myself tense to run even before my hand came all the way down. And then I realized it wasn't him. And that's where I'll be. You know, I'll be in that survival instinct all the time. Forever. Even when I heal, that will be there to protect me. And I see it everywhere. In politics in government, in where I work, in my managers, just everywhere, dysfunction and abuse. And you, the only thing that you can really keep with you is finding yourself. I'm so much better now. I am so healthy compared to where I was. Everything in my life is so much better. I don't live with abuse, and my son is doing great. I had a court order where we have to have FaceTime visits with his estranged, with my estranged husband, his dad. And since then, my son has started choking me. He's very confused. But he feels safe here enough to tell me why. I can't tell you what that feels like. It's it's huge watching this child that has been through so much be able to put it down and start to learn how to put it down himself without help. And things have happened to him in his father's household. It is clear. There was one day he ripped a metal shower bar out of a shower because he was afraid. But he is brave and resilient. And so the heck am I. I'm awesome and beautiful and wonderful and a freaking Valkyrie. And <laughs> my heart breaks for me because someone didn't see that and I've never had a real partner. But I don't need a real partner. I will be my own partner. And if somebody else comes along who's worthy of me, well, then they are welcome. And everyone deserves love, real love, not the love you're told is love. And not the love that you think you you deserve because you feel so low on yourself. All I can say is make a plan. Make a real plan and get out. And when you get out, don't look back. It's not worth it. Know that there will be people that will blame you and never believe you. Family members and friends, just know that going in. And you stay firm in that because this will mess with your head for the rest of your life. And you will always go back and go, did I, did, is this me? Did I, that's not you. And it's not the truth. It's what someone made you think you were. So you wouldn't see your own cage. Okay. I'm calling off my soapbox. I'm sorry. (laughs) Hi. Hi. (laughs) 
I think this is the best episode we've ever had. <laughs> I hope it helps some people, man. How are you doing? We need it. I I feel good. I didn't think I would. I feel really good. <laughs> I think just like everyone who's been listening, you're hanging off of every word and you told your story beautifully, heartbreaking, and, you know, you're coming out of the end of this strong, and I think everyone is going to think you're a badass, I'll tell you that right now, <laughs> um, in the best way possible, <laughs> and, you know, before we started this conversation I asked if this was the first time telling your story um, and I think this this was from beginning to end so I guess how does it feel to say it out loud and in some sort of way be clear of it or be clear as far as um, you know putting it into because you know you were afraid to write it down. You didn't want to write it down. You had a fear of it. And in a way, writing it was a, a different form of reliving it than saying it out loud. So how is this for you? Oh, my God. I think I just realized I could write it down now. I, I think this helped me so much. I think I can put it down on paper. I actually feel relaxed when I'm talking about it. I think I could do it. Holy crap. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and no, I think I can. <laughs> so so you know, as far as, you know, you and your son go and dealing with your husband in court, um, kinda of where do you stand there and you know, is there kind of you know, I think you all you also said before um, what you haven't mentioned yet is that your son has had to talk to him on the phone and that it's, discom yeah. it's discombobulating for him. So how have you been dealing with that? If, if my son doesn't want to talk to his father, um, then I do everything in my power to go okay. You don't have to. Uh, the The way it's written out is it's supposed to be a three times a week phone call conversation. It doesn't specify time. So my son will say, you know, I think it's time to go, something along those lines. I have never given him those words. He chose those words. So all I can do and the only thing I can rely on because it is so confusing and people who are in this, these kinds of circumstances, they're going to find just how surreal this stuff is. You know, we're playing house with somebody who almost killed me three times a week. How confusing is that for a six year old? You know what I'm saying? So like these things that I rely on in those moments are this child needs to feel safe. If, he has a meltdown, that phone goes down. And it is so important for him to feel safe, to know that he's safe, to know that he is in a safe place with safe people. Um, and that that's what I rely on the most and that 
This is his childhood. He needs it to be happy. COVID freaking showed up after this, dude. Like, right when my son started to use a fork again, because eating is a huge issue for him. He is a very high-functional child. He has sensory issues. And I'm, we're still debating whether it's uh, high-functioning Asperger's or if it's from the trauma. Only time will tell. So right when he had started to eat full meals again, COVID hit. And in one day, everything was gone, just like when we fled. And then the phone call started. He has been through so much. So what he needs the most is to feel safe and to have a happy childhood. So those are what I rely on. It's not about reaffirming anything else except that it's okay to be happy. If your dad's on the phone and you want to see him, it's okay. You're not bad for that. There's nothing wrong with that. You love your dad. That's, those are the things I rest on when I am so confused. And if it gets out of hand, if it gets out of control, if it, if it falls into the tension phase too much, I don't do anything. My son does things now. He'll say, time to go. The honeymoon phase on the phone is difficult because you miss that person so much. So when that, or you did, I did. Of course, my son misses him. So when that person shows up, you'll do anything for that one person. You'll deny that person ever laid hands on you because that, that good side of them showed up. And I don't even think of it as an addiction. It's the person, it's, it's like seeing someone's soul, like, you assume that's their soul. That's the root of who they are. And even the last year of my marriage, uh, my estranged husband said, you know, I know I said that if we adopted some kid that I could love it as much as my own flesh and blood, but I couldn't do that. Just just flat out said it. It's like, what? <laughs> he said it again. He's like, yeah, yeah, I know what I said. Da, 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 da. I said, you know, that's how I fell in love. He's like, yeah, 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 but I could never do that. He said it like, where are you going to go? <laughs> you know, I was like, that may be a part of their soul, that good person. That may be a part of them. It's not worth it because you have to sacrifice everything that you are and have and will be just to catch a glimpse of that person sometime. And that person can kill you. You have to see those flags and go. And get your paperwork, people. Get everything you can on paper. Don't be afraid to go to social services. Find out who you need to find out information from, and you go, and you do not stop until you get it all on paper. You keep it yourself. Hey, Bunny. Speaking of somebody, somebody just woke up. Hi, are you okay? Just a dream. No? You want to sleep in the big bed? Yeah? Let's go. You want to say hi to Kitty? Come on, let's get you in bed. You want water? Okay. Ooh, apple juice? Okay. Here we go. Ooh, yeah. Did you hear me talking all loud and passionate? All right, I woke you up. Hold on. Oof. Hey, guess what I'm doing? This is my friend I told you about who does all those classes for people like you and me who need help. 
So we're talking right now. Are you going back to bed, babe? Can I give you a big smoochie? Are you going to sit here? Are you checking on me to see if I'm okay? You are? Okay. I'm okay. I am better than I've been in a bit. You want a pillow? No? Okay. Okay. Snuggle up. I love you. Speaking of fun, there's a little guy right here on my feet. <laughs> I'm back. Hi. Hi. So, so everyone, um, also, the last time I spoke to you, I got to hear your son in the background because I, I called you a bit earlier than, than today. And uh, your son is super smart. Um, like, uh, really... Uh, uh, intelligent beyond his age. Very aware, very very aware of things. You've heard that thing about um, trauma, that some people walk away becoming an empath, but it's not empathic nature. They just had to be aware of everything around themselves so they could protect themselves or stay safe so they can detect the tone of a slam door or things like that. He's not just intelligent. He's very hyper-aware. Take this pillow, bro. I got two. Here, look. Take this pillow. Boom. And now he's got a big kitty right by his feet. So he's good. So as far as your healing process goes, uh, will your healing, you know, it's hard to say, like, will your healing begin when uh, the divorce is is final or how do you begin to know where to start your healing uh, in this situation? I've done a lot of um, talking to my inner child, which I never did before. Um, you know, because I, I went through trauma, like I said, as a child, I was three and it never got um, remedied. It never got healed. It ne- there was no closure. And I never talked about that with anyone except my estranged husband. So now I'm talking to that that little girl and asking her what she needs, and it's been incredibly helpful. Um, shadow work has been very helpful. That's a certain step you do to look at yourself in certain ways, like draw yourself how you see today, how you see yourself today. Draw yourself how you think other people see you. Um, things of that nature, and just research about how PTSD lives in your body so that you can become connected to your body enough to know when it's trying to tell you something. When I was trying to tell me stuff for like 10 years, man, I was just like, it's cool. And my body was like, no, 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 it's not. And I couldn't listen, but now I do. And if I get an emotion... I respect and love myself enough to honor that emotion. It has something to tell me. And it doesn't matter if I learn it immediately or if I learn it in a couple of days or a week or a month. I don't choke on it. I don't act like it's not there. I allow myself to feel it so I can be able to see it. Because I think a lot of people, when they've been so abused as we were, freeze. And you stay in a pattern of why is this happening? Why is this happening? What is going on? And you stay stuck. Getting through the 
getting through over being overwhelmed um, is a big part of it too, because you can, and that's the thing. It may feel unattainable, but that's not the truth. It's utterly attainable, and there are things you can do for yourself, even if it's just coloring on a piece of paper when you have strong emotions. It's a start. It's a physical start. Little things like that um, help a lot. And I have this amazing creature in my life, my son. Like I would, I would choose this path every time because he's here without question. My days are filled with the, the highest joy and like the saddest of the sad. Yeah. But because he's here and I get to be with him and I get to do things with him and we do the silliest, funnest stuff. I'm having the best time of my life just being with him. And if the price is what I went through, fine. Do it over again. <laughs> Sorry, me. But I, w- I wouldn't know what love was if I hadn't met him, you know? If I hadn't met my son, I'd be like, what? And that helped a lot. So I'm sorry. What were you saying? <laughs> oh, no, I was just, you know, going to say, you know, before we we uh, close it down and, um, like, is there other things that you want people to know uh, that you haven't mentioned yet or just want to kind of reiterate before we go? No, uh paperwork make sure you get everything on paper um uh make a plan and trust yourself that's the hardest part it really is and when you trust yourself for the first time it's going to make you physically sick because you have been programmed to not And everything in your body is going to go into fight or flight and it's going to fight you on that. That's your ego trying to protect you. And that's okay. Trust yourself a little bit more than you did the day before. And just keep trying that until you can trust yourself completely. Because that's how you're going to get out. That's how you're going to remember exactly what happened and that it wasn't your fault. Well, Uma, you did a wonderful job. (laughs) A one like <laughs> you are wonderful today. Um, you know your pillar of strength, and so, uh, you know our, our most requested episode from people emailing is our episode with Elizabeth. People email uh, to talk about Elizabeth the most, and today uh, I think we're going to start to get so many emails about you and your story in your strength that's going to help a lot of people uh, recover from what they went through and also help people leave what they went through. And you did just a tremendous job. You're a wonderful person. You're a wonderful mom. And I'm so happy to have uh, met you today or the other day and talk to you again today. (laughs) Hit me up in some texts. I'm always here and it's a real small town. <laughs> and you're the first person to ever bring up space balls. I never thought space balls would ever be mentioned um, <laughs> on this podcast. And I think we talked last time how I, I love Mel Brooks and you brought up space balls. So um, <laughs> thank you. 
for, for doing that You're as well. Welcome. I did figure out my favorite movie. I'll drop that in. Real oh, yeah. So, we, by yeah. the way, everyone, we were talking uh, the other day. I asked you <laughs> what your favorite movie was, and, and you didn't have an answer. But now, here we go. What is it? Yeah. It's Never Ending Story. Oh, wow. My friend's yeah. wife yeah. is a big uh, fan of The Never Ending Story and named her dog Atreo. That makes me happy. <laughs> Fight against the sadness, it's true. <laughs> a great movie. Everyone should always show it to their kids. Um, very wholesome. <laughs> Best puppetry work ever. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. Well, that was the era where puppets were around. I love the like you, everyone using puppets. It's not really done that much these days, but. I think there is I, a show on Netflix called a uh, waffle emoji and there's puppets. You should see it. Okay. I'll take a look. <laughs> and I, I, hopefully we're not boring anyone now, but I think maybe this is the time to, I guess, say, say goodbye. And you know, sorry. Oh no, no, no. I, it's me. Um, so, so thank you everyone. Thank you. Uma. And, you know, you, you really, 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 from the bottom of my heart, you did an amazing job. And I know this episode, uh, your story is going to help uh, a lot of people. So uh, thank you so much for being here. And I know we're going to text uh, a lot. So um, <laughs> I, uh, I, I do too. So for everyone else out there who is listening on behalf of myself and Uma, I hope you have a good night.